0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Space for Magic podcast. And OMG, I know you're going to get a lot out of today's guest, Terry Cisficio. So I met Terry a few years ago. I had the privilege of speaking at her awesome event where we were introduced through a mutual acquaintance. She put me on her stage sight unseen, which is just Such a crazy, crazy leap of faith. But what I've come to know about Terry is this is how she lives her life. She shoots from the hip, she trusts her gut, and she goes where the energy takes her. Now, what I've come to learn about her over the years that we've known each other is she has a very soft inside, which you might not necessarily know up front. And I hope it comes through in this interview because her public persona, what you see on stage or when you maybe watch her TEDx video, which went completely viral, she has two, And I've got to check in with her on how much one of them has. But I know as of just a bit ago, one of her videos was up to 7 million views. And you see someone like this and with such a strong personality and such strong ideas and such a charming way of communicating all of it, and you think that there are no chinks in the armor. And yet in her new book, Unfollow Your Passion, she reveals so many of her soft-sided stories that I just have a new special place in my heart for Terry. So Terry, with that, welcome. Thank you so much, Patty. What a sweet
1: intro. And you know it's so funny that you're like, Terry is a very soft inside because you're right. People don't think that of me. They think I'm sort of tough as nails and really um, not. <laughs> and I do shoot from the hip but I also just trusted. I just had a feeling about you and I and it turned out I was right. And if I was wrong, oh well, but I wasn't. I was right and I adored you from the start.
0: Well, I adored you right back and why don't you share a little bit about what you do professionally before we jump into our topic today?
1: Yeah, the way I describe what I do now that I've had 10 years working on my own to I say begin to figure it out because I would have given you a different title of a euro as in business. But how I describe it now is that I'm a writer, speaker, and a brand advisor, which is really uh, a fancy way of saying that I um, I like to think of myself as a kind of corporate poet. I have training in poetry, which means I gave a lot of time and attention to language early in my career, like in my education. And so what I do now is I use my command of language and lyricism to bring that magic to people's work, whether it's their business and they're trying to communicate with their clients and their customers, or they're giving a TED talk. To me, it doesn't matter. I'm industry agnostic and platform agnostic, but what I love to do is help people get to the heart of what they want to share and help them put it into words
0: that move. Mm, and you do it so well. That event, that that first event that I spoke at, One of the main goals for the participants was that they would walk away essentially having a framework for their TED talk. Yes, that was the appeal because everyone, well, first of all, not everyone wants to give a TED talk,
1: but anyone who aspires to speak, TED is that new standard. And it's also the new format. You know, while like sonnets were a popular form of poetry for a long, long time, TED is like a new format and it's, Barely new, right? And it's, uh, it's shorter now. It's getting shorter. So like a 10-minute TED Talk, if you want to be a speaker, it's really important to think through your work that way. And those are some of the things we talked about that day.
0: And that takes me to what we're going to talk about today, which is, I'm just going to say it's the topic, you know, it's the title of your book. Very rarely would I just claim that, but Unfollow Your Passion, so good, so good, and what I want to ask you, because this is what I thought you did so brilliantly in the room for so many people that day, was I've heard a lot of people teach TED, I should say, that give workshops, have written books, et cetera. I've, I've listened to a lot of it. And there's the underlying idea that in a TED Talk, you have one idea. Yes. And even though I've heard it taught by many people, your room was the one place where I feel like you really pushed people to get the concept because it's not just an idea. It has to be an idea that what?
1: It has to be an idea that you can really get behind because the problem I see, and I know you see this too, is a lot of people who want to speak or do speak, they say they talk about everything. And, you know, and we can, if some, if you told me to talk about something, I'd find a way to talk about it. But we hesitate to pick a thing because then we think well, we're going to be defined by that thing. You don't have to be, but getting to the heart of an idea for one short talk means that you do have to, you have to not talk about most
0: things. <laughs> That's the challenge. So it's what I love that you help people understand though, was it, it can't just be any idea it has to be, you know, it can't be an idea that other people have put out there in the same way. You have to find your own way into the idea. Yes, people will say,
1: oh, but everyone's already talked about that. I say, good. That means there's a demand for that topic. Do you know how many TED Talks there are about passion? There's a lot. I think that we tend to underestimate how important our perspective, our POV is. And why it's worth us doing it. You don't, you're don't. you not more qualified to give that talk just because you have a PhD. If you have a PhD in it, great, but it doesn't really mean that people necessarily want to hear you talk about it, right? You owe it to that audience to find that unique match between the topic, your opinion about the topic, and your story and why you're telling that story. So it should bring both to bear, your expertise and who you are and there's no one who has the same combination as you.
0: And so you put um, the book that you have that's going to be out in just a couple of weeks, Unfollow Your Passion, was based on your TED Talk, right? That was the jumping off point of it? Well, (laughs) yes, but uh, it
1: may seem like, oh, she did a TED Talk and then she turned around and wrote a book about it. No, I had no intention to write a book that had anything to do with the TED Talk, really. I mean, I gave that talk It was in 2015. It was years ago. If I were going to do a talk about it, I would have done it like right away. But I just, uh, I didn't. So I was writing though, because I knew I wanted to write something. And I said, well, I don't know what it is until I've got enough clay on the table and then I will shape it. So for like several years, we're talking like five, six, seven years, I wrote and wrote and tried to figure out what is it that I want to say. I thought I had a collection of like essays. I didn't know. I just knew I was creative nonfiction and blah, blah, blah. I didn't know. But I shopped it around, found an agent. You only need one to say yes, and only one did. And then she took it to a publisher and said, you know, this this person has a little bit of a platform. She could write her, blah, blah, blah. The publisher said, oh, well, we're going to have to bring back that TED Talk. Like, that's the thing people know. Like, why not fold it into that? It was such a great talk. So I had to be guided back to it, quite honestly, Patty. It was not, oh, I did
0: this A plus B equals book. Mm, well, What I love about it is not necessarily that the, this, like that TED talk, create the book. It was the position you took on this topic, which is that, you know, you need to follow your passion. And I think, you know, what I find a lot of people that I've talked to talk about is what's my purpose, which I think this is a similar. Yep. Conversation, to just the words, or maybe it's just semantics in the context you talk about it in.
1: Well, it's all of these things. The talk kind of challenged the question of do we need to have find or commit to one passion in order to make our lives meaningful? My answer is no. But then the book expounds on that. And so, you know, it's a ten minute talk. You need more than that to to fill a book. And so, I took the material I had and was thinking about well, what is it that the reader needs? What did people love about that talk? It was taking something people have been told to believe and challenging it and going, why? Why do we have to think about that way, right? That's always fun to think, to be kind of counterintuitive, and it has to then bear out. So I said, okay, well, what if we're already we going to challenge this idea of having to follow your passion? What about purpose? What about callings? You know, the book, of course, goes and knocks down every, it's kind of iconoclast style and that it's like, all right, do we really believe this stuff? But back to your point about purpose, most people will tell you passion is a thing I enjoy doing. Purpose is the reason I'm on the planet and calling is something that, well, quite literally I'm called to do. Something is drawing me toward it, kind of like the divine, like they feel a divine calling. If you feel a divine calling, wow, That's wonderful go ahead and follow that. But the average person goes, oh God, I guess I wasn't on the short list for those calls. (laughs) And then they worry that, oh, I don't have, I don't know what my purpose is yet. That question drives me crazy because it presumes that you were supposed to know. I don't understand that because I don't know. No one is born going, oh yeah, I know precisely what I'm supposed to be doing forever. You might have an inkling, you'll meet people, you'll read things, you'll try things, you'll hate certain things, and that will guide you. How you describe it is your choice. And if you want to call what you do uh, your purpose, you're calling, that's great. But what I hear is, oh, God, I don't know what my passion is. Oh, no, I, w- I don't think I have a purpose. No one called me. And I don't like that feeling. And I don't think it's helpful. So that's why I challenged
0: it. Mm-hmm. So if someone's listening and they're feeling adrift right now and they're thinking, oh, I know I'm supposed to follow my passion, but I'm not even sure what that is or how to do it. What I hear from a lot of people is they have this vague sense of it. It's sort of out there in the ethers, but they don't have any context to it. They don't have a container for it. What, I mean, I know because I read the book, but what would you say to that person? I would say, this effort and
1: thinking you have to find something out there that you can attach yourself to, the reason that feels so uh, forced or the reason it doesn't feel helpful is because it feels forced, because you're trying to find this match and you think that you might get it wrong. And that is the concern. I think that people think, well, I'll pick the wrong life. You know, I'll pick the wrong thing. And that is can't be. That's not what's going to happen. So if someone says, well, how can I find my purpose? I say, well, what are you doing? It's a matter of what's in front of you. What are you doing now? What have you been doing? Where do you feel yourself kind of lit up? Or you know, where do you feel your skills coming to life? And it may not be, well, I always thought I'd be an astronaut. Like it doesn't have to be this title. We look for the external. Well, I was supposed to be a doctor or a novelist, or whatever. The titles and things like that don't always help. So the question is really, does what you enjoy doing or want to be doing or the thing you most like to contribute, does it have to match up with some external idea of an industry or a job title? Most of the time, it sort of hinders people's search. So for instance, if someone says, well, I was supposed to be a professional writer or I was supposed to be a journalist, but I didn't do that. And now I'm working in this and I I did the wrong thing. I'd say, but what about the writing appealed. Well, I love being able to come uh, be creative and come up with things to say. I said, okay, so then writing in a form of self expression and, and spending your time with language, that doesn't mean you have to be a magazine editor. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I guess I should be a reporter or a journalist. There's so many ways to use your own gifts, if you will, but I like prefer to use the word skill. There's way, way more ways. We just tend to be zero sum about
0: it well, I'm in this industry. I'm in the wrong industry. You know what I mean? Mm, yes. Now I want to ask you about something else. Another idea you knock down, which is getting out of your comfort zone to understand yourself better or something. Yes. Not that the something is not yours, but why people say that? Oh, yes. Well, I think that it's a weird
1: thing that that advice has become so ubiquitous, this, you have to get out of your comfort zone, as if aiming for discomfort is the same thing as aiming for a goal. You know, I, it's not that, look, we're going to spend most of our lives mildly or vaguely or extremely uncomfortable. I mean, the moment we're born, we're born into discomfort because we were somewhere warm and safe and we're spat out you know, into the bright room, soaking wet and stark naked. Like that's not a great way to start anything. And that's how we started life. (laughs) Like that was not easy. And then to think that in order to grow, we must seek discomfort is nuts. We spend most of our time trying to find a shred of comfort. And the minute you find it, you're told you should leave it. I think the intention behind that advice is to help us stomach the discomfort better But I still say there is no shame in aiming for comfort because I don't equate comfort with complacency or laziness. I don't look at comfort as a bad thing. You know why? Because having a a really nice coat or a really cushy apartment costs more money, not less. That means people do put a premium on comfort. So it's okay to want comfort. I don't just mean creature comforts. and I don't just mean physical comfort or wealth. I mean being comfortable in your own skin. So this, and, okay, so I'm also a middle-aged woman, okay? Like, I have a different perspective than a 20-year-old male who likes to jump off buildings with a rope tied to his ankle. Like, that's different. But I find it a little, this is as conspiracy theory as I'll get, Patty, is isn't it interesting that you you might tell women, and you're not just telling women, but that women might take in this idea that I'm supposed to be uncomfortable or I'm too comfortable. I say that's a little bit, tricky to be telling women that, especially when they finally get to an age where they start to feel their own power, their own worth, and their own ability to make waves in the world. If I were someone who wanted to derail that, I might tell people, oh no, you're supposed to be uncomfortable. Now, women have been uncomfortable enough. Most of them are uncomfortable right now. So no, I think we should strive to expand our comfort zones, bringing more things into them rather than think we're supposed to leave them every five minutes.
0: Mm -mm -mm. That's some good stuff there. I love that part of the book. That was so awesome, Terry. So this was not the context that you told the story, but I'd love for you to share the story because it cracked me up about, I think dance recital is not the right (laughs) word. It was a show in your um, senior year of college, if I recall correctly. Because essentially that's a story of you allowing discomfort to have a different experience. Yes, I was a senior
1: and we we I was in something. I was, I went to Boston College and I was the director of the Boston College dance ensemble. Okay, a little theater group of dancers. We put on our own shows, we put together our own costumes, and during one of the final performances, I went out with my top on upside down, but I didn't realize that because we were doing a quick change in the wings. So when I went out, the minute I started dancing, my top it was like a mesh. It was the '90s. Okay. It was a black mesh crop top. Wait, wait, wait. Can you can you describe the whole outfit? You do it so beautifully in hmm. the book. It was a black mesh crop top with a black bra underneath, and then black biker shorts, and then black knee pads. So it looked like, if you were looking, it was very cut up. You know, it looked like I was a woman whose private parts had been redacted. Like it just looked like black strokes through it. And so it was a really hot outfit. We're dancing like Janet Jackson or something. And this top flips up over my boobs, essentially with my black bra hanging out and like, like as if you pulled down a drape, you know, a curtain and let go over real fast, like the blinds. It was like up around my neck. And I was like, oh my God. And I looked down, I was like, oh boy. But you don't want, I didn't even notice it until I heard someone in the front row say something because they were so close and i i just looked down i was like oh my shirt's on upside down and in that moment i had a choice of course you do not want to touch your costume you do not want to detract from the attention you work for months to not only create a dance but you know to choreograph it but to get everyone moving in unison and the minute you break form you're going to distract from this whole that you created together and i didn't want to do that and i also thought Meh, who cares? It's not like I was naked. I mean, I was wearing a bra or whatever, but I made the decision that moment to commit, to commit to the show, to commit to it and said, it doesn't matter. A few people will notice, some won't, and the people who do will not even care. That was an uncomfortable moment for a second, but I also didn't think anyone was looking at me. When you're dancing in an ensemble, there's lots of dancers moving together. And the point wasn't me at all. So that's in a chapter on commitment where I talk about like, Sometimes the committing you do is momentary, and it is critical to the whole. If I had made a fuss about it
0: or run off stage, well, I would have ruined the whole piece. And I think that's where my question was: is that you are making a case for staying in your comfort zone or being comfortable, but there is a place where embracing discomfort, when it co- once you've made a commitment to move forward, because you do talk a lot about the importance of this, it's. Being all in.
1: Yes, being committed to it all in, like you commit to a joke, I committed to my bra hanging out. and I was a little uncomfortable, but it was also funny. I realized my go-to is to either get mad at something or laugh at something. like uh, it, and that's and I wasn't mad. and I was more like, this is kind of hilarious. this will make for a great story. And I decided just to assume the context of comfort. I said, I was gonna pretend my costumes not normal. That's performance. You deal with, you know, you kind of in the moment, you kind of say, "I'm going to be comfortable with this." You don't go, "Oh, I'm in, I'm uncomfortable.
0: Oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to do anything? I'm going to do the steps I rehearsed." So, right now, I know from talking to many people that there's a feeling that the rug has been pulled out from underneath them, either because things that they had planned for even pre-pandemic aren't working out because of the pandemic or even more recently, like, okay, we're, we're back from this pandemic thing, even though it's still going yeah, on right. and I'm rebuilding and I've made this plan and I'm doing all the things, I'm doing all the things, God, I'm doing all the things, you know, other humans, um, like whoever you think you're reporting to, you're being the, you know, you're showing up for the goal that you've planned towards, and now things are not working out the way right. that you had planned. Talk to what you have to say to someone in that situation. Well, to, you mean to
1: everyone then? because we all had plans that got changed in the past two years, right? Like everything changed. And this sounds like a cold, hard truth, and it sounds it sounds colder than I mean it to be, but plans don't owe you an outcome. You can make a plan. You can make any plan you want. You can plan to go to the moon. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going unless you're really putting it. Even if you could plan to go to the moon, and you're strapped into the rocket, and you've had all the training, and then it starts to rain or snow or whatever, and you're not going. Plans are flimsy. We don't. So we do make plans, and we try try as we can, as much as we can, to stick to them until the world changes or we change, which is the guarantee. That is the consistent thing. So I. Talk about planning versus plans, which really we're just talking about them as two different parts of speech, a verb and a noun, and the verb will always take you farther than the noun. You know, if you're supposed to go to the beach one day with your friends and it does pour rain and you're sad or you're mad about it, rain doesn't make you mad. It's not the rain. It's that the plan and the outcome you had envisioned doesn't match your reality. That's the problem. And of course, we know that's called an attachment, an attachment to outcome, which Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about is, you know, the burden of psychological time, what you expect is supposed to happen and doesn't, or regretfulness about what didn't happen. So yeah, I mean, look, realize that every book is idiosyncratic to that author. And as someone who doesn't love planning and is quick to change them if need be, this comes a little more easily to me. Uh, but I, I work with a lot of financial planners. In fact, was on one of their podcasts recently. They don't like to like let go of plans, but then they realize that the plan itself isn't worth anything if you're not able to flex and bend and evolve with or for it. But I don't know. I I'm trying to figure out if this is Patty, such a breakthrough idea. I mean, certainly everyone knows they're two different things. But I think we we were fooled, weren't we? That that plans, if we intended them and we did all the right things and we were good girls and boys, that outcomes would be rewarded to us. Like we would get what we planned. And
0: it it we all know now it doesn't work that way. Yes, yes, we definitely know that. <laughs> we definitely know that in 2021. Well, I think one of the things I talk a lot about here is that. You can have you know having a plan is good like taking action is good cuz that's your what I call 100%. You do your 100% right. and then the divine takes over. Right. The thing is the divine may not always agree with our destination. That's right. And so it's it's not that the divine saying screw your plans. It's that she's saying I have something better in mind. We only see so far, right? We, we think we have headlights that show down the whole road. No,
1: we're only seeing a little bit. And whether we believe, yes, that the universe has better plans for us, or if we think it's all just messed up, we say, oh, everything, nothing works out and nothing, we start to create ego around it. Nothing works out for me. Why don't I get this? I mean, honestly, you know how this connects with the passion discussion? People say, but I'm passionate about X and I need to make a living doing it. The world doesn't owe you a living because you like doing a thing either. And I you and I talk Ooh, very differently. Wait, wait. About
0: I'm it. gonna stop you there for a yeah. second. I'm gonna just stop you. Say that one more time. That our attachment to plans can often mirror our
1: attachment to our passion or purpose. Because we think if we're well-intentioned and good at a thing, maybe we think even talented or gifted or divinely, you know, made for this task, and it doesn't work out. We're upset because we thought it was owed to us, that we put on our 100% and that the universe or whomever owes us the job, the path, the opportunity. And as we know, most people never get the opportunities that they think would be best for them or that they dream about. Maybe they don't get them. They get something else. And who's to say what's better, right? Well, God. This is like lottery winners. I say I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I would not wish it on anyone to win the lottery. I think it, it, look, there's lots of stories of how it just sort of kind of messes with people's lives in really, really messed up ways. And so I say, you might think you want to win the lottery. And maybe you're like, but I'd be so happy if I had this money. I do this. Check in with some lottery winners. Like, you know, they don't always like fare the best just because they had the most of what they thought they wanted.
0: Yes. Yes. So many of those stories. But it is
1: about attachment, isn't it? We're attached to what we think we're passionate about. We're attached to what we think is supposed to happen. Actually, Patty, I want to mention one study that I, and I don't have it open in front of me, but there's a study that's talked about in the book. I think it's one published in Psychological Science in which they, Carol Dweck and a few other of her team looked at fixed mindset versus growth mindset, specifically as relates to passion people who thought they were divinely determined to do this thing, this is what their passion this is, what they're meant to do. Then they're the growth mindset people who are like, oh, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that, or however you, you know, they have a little more flexible, fluid idea. The people who had a fixed mindset about passion were more likely to curtail their interests in other things. So they were more likely to have tunnel vision. And when they were given a challenging, say, an article to read about the area that they said they're passionate about, like a really tough thing that would be very hard to understand, like meant, to adv- meant for uh, advanced experts, the people with a fixed mindset were more likely to come back and say, I guess I'm not really interested in this. Maybe it's, it's the wrong thing. They were more likely to dismiss it totally. They just weren't willing to hang in there where the people with the growth mindset were more like, well, maybe I'll learn it. Maybe they have more, they give themselves more of a spectrum of opportunity where the fixed mindset people, even about passion, did not necessarily fare better.
0: Mm, So good. So you, probably one of my favorite stories, more because of the happy ending in the book, is about you losing your luggage and you have that interwoven with the story of your friend having lost her luggage. And that's told in the context of luggage versus baggage. But I think what I wanted to talk about first is the fact that the luggage not being there ended up, although it didn't, you weren't comfortable, you got a better ending.
1: Yes. I am forever afraid that I'm going to lose luggage. Always. And then, then it happened. Everything I've been, a lot of things I've been really afraid of, Patty, happened. I was afraid of getting really sick while I wasn't home. That happened. I almost died from sepsis once when I was on a business trip. Afraid of losing my luggage. I lost my luggage. It's like, be careful what you're afraid of because it might happen. And then you find out, oh, okay, I can survive this. But it's not like I would wish anyone lost luggage, but it brings up the question of what we're, what we choose to carry and what we believe we are burdened with. And I make the distinction in the book between luggage and baggage. And I really, it's just always bothered me, the term baggage, because it's usually a term that we use to project what someone else has. Like, oh, I can't date him because he's got kids and his ex-wife has got too much baggage. Or she gets so much baggage because, you know, she was da-da-da-da, this happened to her. It's sort of a judgy thing. You know, and if you say it about yourself, well, you're being self judgy. And I thought, I hate that term. I hate that we say that because we're making assumptions about how people fare in their own situations. There's people who've lost everything and they don't have baggage, meaning they're not emotionally weighed down. They're able to recover and be resilient, while others have lost less, but hang on to it more. Luggage, on the other hand, is something that we pack ourselves. Because I'm so completely anal about luggage, I'm really careful with how I pack and what I choose. And so, the reason I love it as a tool and as a metaphor is that we get to decide what we take with us from one thing to the next. We don't always get to decide if it's going to make it there. You know, you might pack your luggage and it might not show up. But I like the idea of intentionally packing what I bring with me so I don't end up saddled with baggage that I didn't want.
0: So I, I love that. I love that clarity. And you do such a good job in the book describing that more. I do want to go back though, to the actual story. So oh, the
1: actual story of me losing it. Yes. I was in the Middle East traveling with my uncle, my uncle, Bob, who was a priest and a, a professor. And he took a study group to the Middle East every year back then. This is a long time ago and you know more than 20 years ago. And so I had never been to that part of the world. I'd never been to Jerusalem. It was a really big trip. And my baggage, he used to never let us check baggage. This was my first trip. And he was like, fine. I was his favorite niece. He let me bring a bag. I checked a huge duffel and it got lost. And I was there having needing special things like amphibious footwear to walk through, you know, (laughs) The ruins, like, and I was so mad I didn't have it. And I said, "Oh, I can't, I can't really be here because I was supposed to have my stuff with me." And then I was like, "Okay, well, you don't have your stuff with you." And I was mad about it, and I was allowing myself to feel mad about it. But I was like, "Well, guess what? You're on this trip. This is a once in a lifetime experience. You just go and deal with it and do what you're going to do." So I did it, and I was going to go. But I realized I could really live by deciding to be there, by deciding to be present, not just hung up on the fact that I didn't have the right footwear. And that night, this was a few days, like the luggage didn't come for a couple days, like two days, three days almost. Um, and that, that night we got back after this big excursion. It was kind of scary and fun. And we got home and back to this place where we were staying, this convent, essentially like an inn. And I was that my luggage shows up. And I say it, it was like a rom-com where the ex-boyfriend comes back and you're like, oh my God, I had almost just forgotten about you. And it turns out you're not all that special. And that's exactly what happened. I got the luggage. Oh my God, my luggage is here. I've been waiting for it. And I opened it and I was like, meh. It was like, all right, there's my stuff. It wasn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be to get my luggage. And I realized I already had what I needed. But we assume we need something outside of us. And we usually can get by
0: just fine. And I think what I found so beautiful about that story is here you are in this book, like explaining to us, make plans, but don't get attached. You know, it's okay to want comfort, which essentially what you packed in your luggage was to make sure you were comfortable. And then yet understand that it may not work out that way. And, you know, bringing in sort of my shtick about, you know, from the divine's perspective, intervening is that. What a beautiful gift you got in understanding, like you had this deep attachment to having all the things in your luggage and to really learn through this discomfort that you're okay without that. That doesn't mean you can't pack your luggage exactly how you pack it for every other trip going forward, but you're never going to go on a trip again thinking it's that important. That's right. I always would say, my mother would always say, like,
1: I'd be like, oh, I hope I don't forget something. Because I still, I mean, look, I'm not the most easygoing traveler. I'm still nervous. I'm like, oh, I forgot. I forgot this charger. I forgot that thing. My mother would always be like, whatever you forget, you'll buy it on the way. You'll get it if you need it. And I decide to trust that, like, I will be able to get it if I need it. But here's the other thing. Because I was the one person whose luggage didn't show up, also this group of people I was traveling with whom I did not know, they were strangers to me they kind of took me under their wing. One woman came and brought me her flip-flops. Another came with a nightgown. I sort of became their project and they kind of wanted to take care of me. And they, I allowed them to, I was kind of in a vulnerable position and I was the youngest one of the group and all this. And they kind of took care of me and that that kind of helped the bonding in a way. You know what I mean? Like I got to be close with them because I had needed them from the start.
0: And that'll go further than you think. Yes. Yes. And I and I love that because it's such a testament to sometimes with all your plans and all your checklists and all the everything you did to make what you want happen, something different happens. But maybe in that vulnerability and that discomfort, you're being opened up to an experience your soul actually needs more than your mind.
1: And who's to know? Like if I could say, I'm so annoyed. Some people would spend a long time ago. I was mad that I didn't have it. They might not allow the lesson to come. And you say lesson, I might say, you know, my brain will do whatever it can to rationalize to make me feel better. And that's fine too. That's the brain seeking some kind of comfort in the pattern. This is meant to be. And the kind of thing where we say, well, it all worked out, didn't it? It all worked out. And it somehow always does. Yes, it does. Until it doesn't. But what does that even mean anymore? Like, I
0: just give up trying to know. I just say, I'm just gonna kind of take the ride. And I think that's that's the big message in this book for me. I don't know what you I'm gonna let you say what you think it is, but that was what I walked away from this book with was this deep sense of calm the fuck down (laughs) and go for the ride. And trust that
1: you already have so much of what you need. I mean I know that sounds a little cliche, but we so often underestimate what we bring to the table. And I'm one of those people. I always think like, oh, I didn't learn this and I don't know enough about that and I get the same doubts and insecurities as anybody else does. but this book, I mean I wrote it partly for myself too. I mean, it's not like I've all the answers. The book is sort of it's going to ideally serve the reader the way the reader needs. Mm. that's the goal. Because I'm not like, do what Terry does. Do what I do exactly as I do it. No, no one's life is the same. But if I can free people up to question, okay, how important is this? Does it really matter? Who really? Why do I feel this pressure to do this thing? Where's that coming from? Whose agenda is this? If I can parse that out and understand I'm making choices because I'm making them for what I think is best, not because I need to please someone else or because someone else... Can I get clear on that? Because if I can't get clear on that, then I can't claim to be free. And I will tell you, Patty, I don't think most people necessarily want that level of freedom and sovereignty because then it also means that if it doesn't work out, they have no one to blame but themselves. And there's plenty of people who would rather blame situations, not take the leap and just blame the situation, which is better than messing it up.
0: And that's the fear. Yes, yes. And even before you even start to say that, what occurred to me too was, it's like just popped into my head, was waiting for your passion to reveal itself or your, you know, whatever, your purpose, your calling, it also can be an excuse to just not go forward.
1: That's um, exactly right.
0: And well, I Beth think- Putin says that all the time. He's like, stop waiting. Like, what are you
1: waiting for? Right? There's an element of the damsel in distress that I don't like- That is like, if you're really good and you put your head down, like the prince slash purpose, passion will come save you from obscurity or drudgery or whatever, and you'll be lifted up. This idea of someone coming to save us is a very dangerous one because it means that we will not take action ourselves.
0: Mm, So good. And ultimately, it's a very hopeful message in the book in that, you don't need someone to save you. You actually are so much more in a position to have a compelling and fruitful and meaningful life. And the keys to how to make that happen are what you share here in this book. That's the goal. I mean, can we look at our lives differently so that we can get different things from it
1: without thinking we have to be fixed, without thinking things have to last forever? without thinking we have to pick one thing and stick with it. I mean, that just isn't what
0: life has to be. So if there was uh, one thought or one focal point that you want to leave this person that is listening right now with, what would it be?
1: It would be that when you get this idea in your head This no-win situation where you think in order to do the right or better thing, you have to then run out on everything else or end everything else or that everything was a mistake, that all-or-nothing thinking, of course, is not helpful. And when we think, well, I'm not good enough ever and I won't be, uh, that's another way of looking at us all as on-off switches. And it's not. Your whole life is one long conversation that you're having with other people, that you're having with your work, and that you're having with yourself. And conversations move and change their living things. We're not a stack of achievements on a LinkedIn page. We are not just what our last picture says of us or our our profile picture, right? We're so much more. And I don't think we quite give ourselves that credit. So give yourself the time, the bandwidth, the willingness to see all that you're capable of instead of always trying to find the right slot to stick yourself through because that's not actually how humans work, and it's undermining what life can offer you.
0: Mm, excellent. So, your book will be out on December twenty first. Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. But it's available for pre sale right now. It's worth doing the pre sale because we've
1: got a lot of fun bonuses and, and clubs and things like that that we're going to be running. So, why wait?
0: Don't wait. <laughs> Get it. <down. laughs> Don't wait. So we will put the links to all of that in the show notes. Is there? Where do you want people to connect with you? Well, for
1: the book, if you want to be like, "Mm, let me look into this book a bit more, just go to unfollowyourpassion.com. That's where you'll find everything there. But to find me, I'm on all the things. I'm on all the platforms. And also at terryjusbyshow.com. So it's the easiest thing in the world. You might not be able to find your passion per se, but you can find me very easily. (laughs) I love it. So good.
0: Thank you so much for being here with me. And for you listening, thank you for hanging out with us. I can tell you, Terry is just such a warm-hearted, honest teacher, and you will feel that inside the pages of this book. So definitely go order it, get in, in on all the good bonuses and all the fun stuff, and have an amazing day and make space for magic. Hey, thanks for listening. If you know someone who needs to hear this message, please share this episode with them.